So, looking at the uh, life of of Samson. Did you guys think we were just going to leave it <laughs> on a cliffhanger? <laughs> Samson. There's a. We want to use this as an example. Learn from his life what we can. Um, personally, I've never found a donkey's jawbone. <laughs> Hasn't happened yet. We almost did. We saw one dead next to the road in the Karoo. Yeah, but we'd have to wait a while. Yeah, but... Yeah. <laughs> I'm not touching that. Anyway, so... <laughs> the potential was there. The potential. The potential. <laughs> okay. So if you're ever in a bind and you need a weapon, look around <laughs> everywhere. Perhaps <laughs> you're in luck, donkey, <laughs> <laughs> And if you ever have to rip apart a lion, do it like you rip apart a lamb. A goat. No, a goat. A goat. A goat. A goat. Yeah. Don't overthink it. Don't so overthink it. It's a goat. No, if you a need goat. a reference a point, you just, you just do it in exactly the same way, okay? So, just in case you were wondering. That's how you do it. Okay. So, reference point. Yeah. Okay, so these are the lessons we're learning from, um, from the book of Judges. Um, now, JP, have you been practicing ripping apart goats this week? Because you've got to be ready when the moment what arrives. What if the line comes? You see. Stop practicing with a phone book. Phone book? Oh, that's, yes, oh, that's I just I had a chicken wing. And <laughs> 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 so you're already on the phone book. Okay. <laughs> okay. Let's. Um, you can start for us. Start reading. Yeah, wherever you please. Read from the <laughs> King James. Okay, so we're in Judges chapter 14. <clears throat> okay, we're not going to read through the whole lion and the honey and the carcass thing again. We're going to continue just after that. So we're going to pick it up at verse 10. So remember, he's still on his way. Or he was still on his way to go marry a Philistine woman. Okay, so his father went down to the woman. And Samson gave a feast there, for young men used to do so. And it happened, when they saw him, that they brought 30 companions to be with him. Pause. So it doesn't look like he has many friends. They have to kind of rent a crowd from the Philistines. <laughs> they saw him showing up, like, we probably need a wedding. He pitches up at his wedding, they go like, go get some friends for him. <laughs> Including a best man. Oh. Yep. Okay, then Samson, okay, now, yeah. Then Samson said to them, let me pose a riddle to you. If you can correctly solve and explain it to me within seven days of the feast, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. But if you cannot explain it to me, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. And they say to impose the <coughs> riddle that we may hear it. So he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. 
Now for three days they could not explain the riddle. But it came to pass on the seventh day that they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband that he may explain the riddle to us or else we will burn you and your father's house with fire. Okay, let's pause there. So seeing how he interacts with these new friends explains why he didn't have friends to start off with. Great. Comment great on social skills. Yeah, comment a little bit on what happens here. Okay. <clears throat> now, growing up, kind of Bible school version of the story, uh, we know that Samson is very strong, but also uh, this idea is illustrated that he is also very wise and witty because he can pose riddles. Did anybody come no away? Any of you come away with that idea of Samson? Was that what we kind of thought? Strong and wise, because he poses riddles to the Philistines and they can't figure it out, so he's really very smart. Okay, now, this riddle that he poses to them, if we just look at it logically, is there anything wise or witty about it? Does it make any logical sense if someone doesn't have context? So do we see that the riddle he poses to them is not wise at all? It's basically a secret that he has that he is dressed up nicely and presented to them uh, to try and outsmart them. He's kind of cheating. Actually. So let's just, at this juncture, I would like to make it clear that we're not criticizing or just looking critically at Samson. There's a purpose why we are taking this approach. We are going to see what we can learn from the story. And so don't just think that we have a critical view. We're critically looking at <coughs> um, emphasizing some of, the, some of the aspects of the real story, what's really happening here, as opposed to what has been implanted mm. and depicted through the ages mm -hmm. um, for some reason regarding him because we're getting to a final outcome so the riddle isn't wise it's not clever there's no way for them to figure out what's going on if i came to you and said i folded a blue with a gray figure it out <laughs> okay how are you supposed to know that i mixed up my socks you see <laughs> So that's the kind of thing. Yeah. So okay. So, but it's his wedding day. His wedding feast. Seven days. His wedding week. He's <laughs> not being a pleasant host, is he? So now he's gambling at his wedding. Great stuff. Might as well get a TV and watch the rugby. So, <laughs> okay. Get another donkey though. Okay. <clears throat> Now for three days they could not explain the riddle, but it came to pass on the seventh day that they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband that he may explain the riddle to us, or else we will burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us in order to take what is ours? Is that not so? Then Samson's wife wept on him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You have posed a riddle to the sons of my people, but you have not explained it to me. And he said to her, 
Look, I have not explained it to my father or my mother, so should I explain it to you? Now she had wept on him seven days while their feast lasted. That's a great wedding week. It's going wonderful. Splendid. And it happened on the seventh day that he told her because she pressed him so much. Then she explained the riddle to the sons of her people. So the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and he went down to Ashkelon and killed thirty of their men, took their apparel, and gave the changes of clothing to those who had explained the riddle. <laughs> so his anger was aroused, and he went back up to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. Um, interesting in the King James Version it says verse 20 but his wife was given to his companion whom he had used as his friend <gasps> nice okay okay the friend is like well I didn't expect this to happen <laughs> think twice before I <laughs> Go to a wedding again. Anyway, so... Why not getting another wife? <laughs> <laughs> when I got the invite, <laughs> I didn't say. expect this. <laughs> Came to support. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so listen, listen, Lynn. If you ever invited as a best man? <laughs> Josh? Count the cost. Just say no. Okay. Okay. After a while, in the time of wheat harvest, okay, so we don't know if it's weeks or months, we don't know. A while. In the time of wheat harvest, it happened that Samson visited his wife with a young goat. I wonder if he was going to rip it apart for her. <laughs> <laughs> Demonstrate his strength. And he said, let me go into my wife, into her room, but her father would not permit him to go in. Her father said, I really thought that you thoroughly hated her, therefore I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister better than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be blameless regarding the Philistines if I harm them. Then Samson went and caught three hundred foxes, and he took torches, turned the foxes tail to tail, and put a torch between each pair of tails. When he had set the torches on fire, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and burned up both the shucks and the standing grain, as well as the vineyards and olive groves. Then the yeah? What did you say? Sure. Yeah, now you guys know why I don't like Samson. I like foxes. Exactly, how do you catch they might have, I was thinking about that as well. Maybe they were just like a lot of them. So he was fast as well. Yeah. Strong and fast and clever. Where did he keep them when he caught them? On his arm. 300. Big <laughs> guy. <laughs> okay, so yeah, so the story is written in the Bible, so it must be true. Okay. Okay. Then the Philistines said, verse 6, Who has done this? And they answered, Samson, 
the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Samson said to them, Since you would do a thing like this, I will surely take revenge on you, and after that I will cease. So he attacked them hip and thigh with a great slaughter. Then he went down and dwelt in the cleft of the rock of Etam. Now the Philistines went up, encamped, against, uh, encamped in Judah, and deployed themselves against Lehi. Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? So they answered, We have come up to arrest Samson, to do to him as he has done to us. Then three thousand men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? What is this you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. So they want to come and do to him what he done what he did to them, and he's going, no, but I did to them what they did to me. But they said to him, we have come down to arrest you, that we may deliver you into the hand of the Philistines. Then Samson said to them, swear to me that you will not kill me yourselves. So they spoke to him saying, no, but we will tie you securely and deliver you into their hand, but we will surely not kill you. And they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When it came to Lehi, Lehi, the Philistines came shouting against him. Then the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned with fire, and his bonds broke loose from his hands. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, reached out his hand and took it, and killed a thousand men with it. Then Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey, I have slain a thousand men. And so it was, when he had finished speaking, that he threw the jawbone from his hand and called that place Ramath-Lehi. Then he became very thirsty, so he cried out to the Lord and said, You have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised. Are you going to just comment on that? Great attitude and godly reverence. Mm -hmm. Thanksgiving and praises. <clears throat> and arrogant, isn't it? Now he goes, how's his attitude towards God? He says, I'm thirsty. Granted, and I mean, let's keep in mind, let's keep in mind that the story starts out with him starting to move <coughs> in between the Philistines and it says that this was God's doing because he had planned against the Philistines <clears throat> but still if we just look at his attitude towards God and the way he interacts with God this is obviously not very godly so it's demanding um, it does say the Holy Spirit comes upon him then he does these things, but uh, we we try and just see what if there's any interaction with God at all. 
what is this interaction? And here we see one of the rare occasions mm. when he interacts from his side with mm. God, and it is demanding. Um, but God gives him what he, asked, what he asks for. Mm. Let's read on. So verse 19, so God split the hollow place that is in Lehi, Lehi, I don't know which one it is, and water came out and he drank, and his spirit returned and he revived. Therefore he called its name En Hakor, which is in Lehi to this day, and he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Now this 20 years, we don't know if it starts here and continues, probably not. Um, it, we'll see when he passes that he judged Israel for 20 years in total. Okay, if there's time we'll comment a bit on the timeline <coughs> later. So he calls out according to his need to the Lord, says this is what I want, this is what I need, and God provides in his need, miraculously, supernaturally, much like he did for the Israelites in mm. the wilderness. Um, and so let's move on from there, see how grateful he is. Now Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. When the Gazites were told Samson has come here, they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. They were quiet all night, saying, In the morning, when it is daylight, we will kill him. And Samson lay low till midnight. Then he arose at midnight, took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two gateposts, pulled them up, bar and all, put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. It really is very strong. Afterward, it happened that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines... Stop mm. here. So here we have some context as to how the lands, what the landscape looks like. Mm. We have even the mention of Gaza. We still know where Gaza is. Let's talk a little bit about the Philistines. Mm. These uh, enemies of the Israelites and Samson especially, he loves them and he hates them, apparently. <laughs> so, can't um, live with them, can't live without them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, he seemingly likes spending time among the Philistines. Mm -hmm. It's where you find them. Mm. Okay, let's talk about the Philistines. What do we know about the Philistines? Have you ever wondered? Because they reoccur in the Bible. They actually play quite a significant role. Mm. We know later in the story they're going to come and they're going to take away the Ark oh, of the Covenant. Covenant. They're going to um, defeat the Israelites, take away the Ark of the Covenant. We know that God breaks out against them. And later on we're going to see that Saul and Jonathan uh, makes war against them. Um, big army, very big army, very strong uh, people. Later on they're going to be the enemies, the friend and the enemies of King David. <coughs> and um, King David is going to uh, finally uh, set the Israelites free from the Philistines. Um, and we know in the time of King Solomon, there's peace in Israel, so the, the Philistines don't bother them anymore. Um, but at this stage, God is using the Philistines to afflict them. What do we know about the Philistines? Okay, so, um, 
Just to start off with, the word Philistine comes from a few roots. And um, it seems that, especially in the Bible, when the word Philistine is used, sometimes, most of the times, it is used, especially from the book of Judges onward, to specifically refer to the tribe of the Philistines. But there is also evidence and proof that it was also used to just refer to tribes that weren't Israel, but that lived in the land of Canaan. So you'll remember um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, but he also had daughters. And then the heading reads the Dina incident where one of the Philistine king's son, they say it's the Philistine king's son that wants to come and marry her. And then two of the sons of Jacob or Israel, this, they go and make a bit of chaos. And then though that tribe, those people, they are called Philistines. But from historical evidence and records, it seems that the actual tribe of the Philistines only arrived in Israel or Canaan around about the same time that the Israelites did. They didn't come from inland, they actually came from the sea. So over that time, there was a movement where tribes from Europe actually moved across the sea and settled in different places. And it seems that this particular tribe of the Philistines, they decided to settle in the land of Canaan. And this happened around about the time that the Israelites arrived. So... So what we know is that there's been excavations and they did find very clear evidence of the and Philistine um, civilization. Interestingly and, um, enough, sorry to interrupt you, but interestingly enough, it says um, in Ashkelon, we had the wedding and then killed all the people. Um, that's actually where they found one of the like most intact in 2016 um, excavations of proof of the Philistine or a Philistine settlement and yes. graves and so on. One of the best names for a city ever, Ashkelon. Ashkelon. Yeah. So cool. <laughs> huh? Really cool, Ashkelon. I wish I lived yeah. in Ashkelon. Anyway, so, <coughs> beautiful name for a city. But anyway, so there they found a lot of evidence. And um, so they find early, the earliest layers of residence there. They found some hello some uh, children buried and they had very clear or the from the from the early um, remnants of people they found there there was a high percentage of european gna DNA. Uh, dna Genes? so DNA. yeah genes. <laughs> so the dna pointed back to um, crete yeah that which is an island off greece now we know the cretans uh, were legendary as warriors. Um, we know the Cretans were uh, respected and well revered as a warring um, nation themselves and so we know that that's connected to the Greek lineage mm -hmm. and so they share a lineage with the Romans um, but apparently there was a, a migration southward and so we can imagine if they come from that gene pool why they were such vicious and ferocious mm. uh, warriors. The Cretans are legendary. Okay, so I'll give you some idea of what we're looking at. Now, uh, some, one of the reasons we're looking at this is um, 
we there's no photographs surviving of the women of the Philistines, but we kind of see in the story that they must have been good looking. So from yeah, yeah from the DNA uh, research that they've done of skeletons that they found, uh, it, they say that it seems that the the DNA that kind of arrived that had very strong European genes and DNA that um, faded very quickly and started um, crossing with the local DNA, if I can put it that way. So yeah. it seems that very soon they started intermarrying with the tribes that were already there. In Canaan? Various tribes. <coughs> yeah. And so the European uh, genetics gets dissolved very quickly, yeah. very rapidly. Um, and this is a bit of information that helps us understand the context of the story. Because the question is, if they were subjugating the Israelites, why were they, they so keen to give their daughters away to the Israelites? Um, it seems that they very quickly um, became uh, involved with the local tribes. And so this could seem like a weak kind of social structure, but the opposite is actually true. Um, so we see the idea of the Philistines, that they are a very clear tribal um, entity, but they are part of what was called or referred to as the coastal peoples. And it looks like there was a confederation of different peoples or tribes of which the Philistines themselves were part. Mm. So they had strong relations with other tribes that were non-Israelite, and not necessarily the Canaanite tribes that God lists mm. as the ones that should be eradicated and avoided. So the smaller tribes, seems they had a confederation, an agreement, some um, covenants formed there. And uh, so this brings us to the understanding <laughs> that the term, the name Philistines, sometimes refers to the actual people, the nation, the Philistines and sometimes in general to the uncircumcised confederation of nations or peoples. And this is why it sometimes can be very confusing. Yeah. You read Philistines that come up against David. It, is, uh, it could be a confederated army led by the Philistine leaders. Yeah, what else do we know about this yeah, structure so and this, this society? This brings us to another point. We tend to think of the Philistines as quite, being quite barbaric. The uncircumcised Philistines, and mm -hmm. they come to make war, and they seem very ferocious and vicious. Uh, when the truth is that they were actually very civilized, and uh, it was in the time of the Iron Age, right? So where we are now, like in the modern age and technology, they were quite advanced for the age, the time that they were living in. Uh, when they arrived. In Canaan, when they did, they brought with them what would have been quite modern technology. Uh, just the fact that they arrived on boats and ships mm -hmm. would have been very intimidating to the local people because they didn't really venture out too far over coasts and overseas. Uh, obviously, it was dangerous for many reasons. And uh, this would be part of why it was so easy for them, having arrived in Canaan about the same time as the Israelites, to overthrow them so quickly. Because we see that they, they rule over Israel 
for quite a while. But also we've got to take into account that it is God's will. So God yes. uh, determined that for 40 years they would be subjected to the Philistines. So there's a, he didn't use a, a, a weak neighboring nation. He used yeah. a very strong neighboring nation. Then we know that um, there's a disarmament agreement that is put in place. How do we know this? Because the Israelites were no longer to have any blacksmiths of their own. So one of the ways that you control the nation back then is just uh, banish any... Because this is where the power lay in that time. It would be the equivalent of America invading or Russia invading a country and say, you know, you're not allowed any technology of your own. You're not allowed to develop any technology. You've got to be dependent on us. So this is what happens then. The Philistines uh, impose a um, uh, embargo on any on the Israelites working with metal at all, because so they keep the powder. The Israelites now have to, as a in a, in a daily way, have to go over to the Philistine cities to sharpen their tools, to have things forged for them, any metal work. And the Philistines are Philistines are experts when it comes to the working of metals. In that day, a very uh, big uh, seat of power. Now, this leads us to another contextual understanding, because now the Israelites would have to go and mingle with them for commerce. Mm -hmm. And so they're getting used to them. They're getting friendly with them. And it seems that this was part of the Philistine attitude. Mm -hmm. They would subjugate, they would um, uh, uh, oppress, oppress mm -hmm. other nations, but they didn't uh, look at them from a uh, racial kind of perspective as different. So they welcomed them in. That's what we can see. And this is where the danger lies. This is why the story, this kind of story is in the Bible. God is looking at the situation going, uh, they're oppressing the Israelites, but the Israelites are getting used to them. Mm -hmm. They actually like them. They respect them. Mm -hmm. The Philistines build big cities. They're very successful. Their social structure is very modern for the time and very organized. They have a very clear leadership structure. Elders, leaders, mm -hmm. they have, they're Kings. rich, they're successful. Mm -hmm. Their social structure is well organized. They have big cities. How do we know they have big cities? At the end of the story, we're going to see that Samson is going to pull two pillars down. It's the pillars that is going to hold the roof or the top story of the building. And the top story is big <coughs> enough to accommodate at least 3,000 people, probably more. Now, this tells us something about the people. If they could build structures like this, if they could have this kind of social, social structure and ability, then we're not looking at barbarians at all. Okay, so now we're looking at this as context to the story. God is going to take some action to keep the Israelites from being assimilated into this kind of amalgamation of nations and tribes where the tr other tribes are quite happy to kind of mix with each other, mm -hmm. form uh, alliances, mm -hmm. and for the sake of becoming rich and successful and strong and safe. Um, so, some context, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, let's carry on with the story. 
Okay, so let's pick it up again at chapter 16, verse 4. <clears throat> Afterward, it happened that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. Now, it's very important. Try and notice, because generally we think, oh, Delilah was his wife, his seductive wife that, you know. Uh, see if you can see whether it says if he actually marries her. Okay. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Entice him and find out where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to go, uh, bind him to afflict him, and every one of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and with what you may be bound to afflict you. And Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings, not yet dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings, not yet dried, and she, she bound him with them. Now men were lying in wait, staying with her in the room, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he broke the bowstrings as a strand of yarn breaks when it touches fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. What do we know about, uh, what have we just learned about the Philistines? They also are people that wash themselves, they're clean, otherwise he would have smelled them in the room. <laughs> I'm looking for a scripture you can carry on. <laughs> I can't remember where it is. Are you going to get check gum tree, what's happening? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So the secret of his strength was not known. Verse 10. Then Delilah said to Samson, Look, you have mocked me and told me lies. Now please tell me what you may be bound with. And for some reason, he stays. So he said to her, If they bind me securely with new ropes that have never been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Therefore Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them, and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And men were lying in wait, staying in the room, but he broke them off his arms like a thread. So the story goes like this. So tell me your secret. He goes, new ropes. He goes, I'm just going to build this quickly. <laughs> off he goes. Buys rope, comes back. He's still sitting there. And then she binds him. Because it doesn't say he's sleeping. Generally think, oh, he was asleep. Yeah. And then she bound him. It doesn't actually say that. So... They've embellished the story quite a bit. It's weird. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Delilah said to Samson, verse 13, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me what you may be bound with. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head into the web of the loom. So she wove it tightly with the baton of the loom and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep. Okay, they were sleeping. And pulled out the baton and the web from the loom. Then she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times and have not told me where your great strength lies. And it came to pass when she pestered him daily with her words and pressed him so that his soul was vexed to death. <laughs> that he told her all his heart and said to her, No razor has ever come upon my head. I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I'm shaven, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other man. 
When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up once more, for he has told me all his heart. So the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hand. Then she lulled him to sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as before at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Then the Philistines took him and put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza. They bound him with bronze fetters and he became a grinder in the prison. However, the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaven. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered together to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has delivered into our hands Samson, our enemy. When the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has delivered into our hands our enemy, the destroyer of our land, and the one who multiplied our dead. So it happened when their hearts were merry that they said, Call for Samson that he may perform for us. So they called for Samson from the prison, and he performed for them. And they stationed him between the pillars. Then Samson said to the lad who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars which support the temple so that I can lean on them. Now the temple was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, about 3,000 men and women on the roof, watching while Samson performed. Then Samson called to the Lord, saying, O Lord God, remember me, I pray. Strengthen me, I pray, just this once, O God, that I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars which supported the temple and he braced himself against them, one on his right and the other on his left. Then Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all his might and the temple fell on the Lord's and all the people who were in it. So the dead that he killed at his death were more than he had killed in his life. And his brothers and all his father's household came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Ishtal in the tomb of his father Manoah. He had judged Israel 20 years. Okay, interesting story from the start. So what? let's go back. What did we see? An angel appears to his To his parents. So first to his mother. And then we see the whole incident where his father does the right thing. He says, God, send the messenger back. Okay. It looks like we're going to have a good start. But then he doesn't pay attention. doesn't ask the most important questions. He wants instruction on what to do. The instruction is given to how his parents should live and raise him. Okay. We saw that Manoah now, for some reason, does his own thing while the angel is there. What he thought was right. Went into works. So it's the same as the transfiguration on the mountain mm -hmm. where the Lord appears in all his glory and Peter says, it's a good thing that I'm here. Let me build us all some um, shelters, some tabernacles. 
Okay, so what's the first lesson we learn from the story? It is that this is where we should be careful. Whenever the Lord interacts with us, speaks with us, let us be the ones that's listening. Don't start responding to the Lord before He's finished speaking. Be careful to listen. Ask questions. Lord, is there more? Is there more that I want, that I should know? If the dream has passed, the vision has passed, the inclination, the inspiration has passed, then wait on the Lord for more. Sometimes we'll wait for another year, another two years. Always seeking. If I don't have full understanding, we keep looking for understanding. Okay. Before we jump to conclusions, now there's always the danger when the Lord speaks to us that we wait too long. If 20 years have passed and you haven't started obeying the Lord, then it's probably a bit long. Okay. So that, this will take wisdom. There's no way of knowing. But what we did see here is, it, it, you might say, well, it's easy for us to criticize Him. But it, he would have done well to ask, Lord, what is your purposes? Why are you telling us that our sons should be separated? Why are we going to have to live? Because the parents now have to live a life of Nazarite vow. Not a big burden. Not a big thing. Don't <coughs> touch dead things. Um, don't eat anything unclean. Don't drink alcohol. Don't shave your child's hair. Sounds to me like less trouble. So, but Manoah interrupts the angel and they never find out what mm. God's purposes are. He does ask the right questions. He just doesn't, it seems that he doesn't realize that he didn't get an answer. Mm. We, can, we can see from the story that they're not even quite sure who Yahweh is anymore. Mm. They're so used to other gods being around and they're quite willing to accept if you if the angel came from someone else that would have been fine as well did we pick that up from the story now if you look at the context of where the story fits into the bible we see the same attitude it's wedged in between the stories of other like-minded men that act in the same way um, micah yeah the next micah. story is micah's idolatry next story micah micah was a man first the story starts off that he's the mother was looking for a lot of money that were, went missing and he, went, he goes back to her and says, I've got your money. She says, well, no, I was keeping the money anyways because I was gonna, going to use it to, because you're a very spiritual guy. I wanted to use the money to get you some more idols made. So she gives him some money, he gets an idol made. And then there was a wandering Levite. So a priest comes along, he's looking for a place to stay. He says, you're a priest, I want a priest. First. Uh, Micah um, set apart one of his sons to be his priest, mm -hmm. to his idol that was, so he had an effort and an idol and everything going. And then luckily a Levite comes along, he says, you stay, you can be my priest, I'll pay you. The priest is very happy, he's got a job. And um, the story goes like that. So we see the kind of attitude, the kind of state that the Israelites are in at the moment. Um, now, uh, rightly spoken, the um, uh, book of Judges isn't necessarily written in chron chronological order. order. Mm. So the stories are a bit mixed up. But then the tribe of Dan, they send out men because they're looking for some land. 
And so they find a spot that they thought, okay, these people are just, they don't have good alliances with other, they're going to go take their land, both of them take, burn their cities and take their land. On the way, they come past Micah's house and go like, oh, there's a guy who's got an idol and he's got a priest. They go like, be our priest, bring the idol, they steal his idol, Samson's, they steal his god. Samson's also a Danite, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. So they steal his god and his priest. And go off and go find some land for themselves. So it gives us some idea of what the Israelites, the state of that they're in. Okay, so now, back to the story of Samson. So just chronologically, it does seem that um, by the time Samson is born, Eli is already the high priest that's going to raise Samuel. And it seems that Samuel also might have been born... Um, and then it, it seems that it works out that after Samson dies is the incident when the Philistines actually take the Ark of the Covenant. Mm -hmm. So just for interest's sake, it wasn't like there could only be one judge mm -hmm. at a time. Mm -hmm. Some of them, actually many of them did overlap because remember they weren't necessarily going to travel all over. Mm -hmm. So in kind of the area that they were, they could be the, the judge. But so we see, and we know that in the time of Eli, the 40 years that he's high priest, the Philistines are oppressing Israel. So this is kind of the state of things um, at this time. Interesting then that we see that uh, Eli is the high priest that's going to kind of be in that suppression time and Samson is born into this and Samson becomes a judge and he's just fitting right into the picture and luckily out of this mess uh, Samuel comes, but Samuel seems to be a conspecific with Samson. What a contra contradictory mm. picture. Mm -hmm. You have these two judges, smallies at the same time in the, in the land, and I mean, no wonder that um, they respected mm. Samuel this much, because the other guy... Mm. Remember, um, Samuel's the guy who calls them to repentance. Yeah. Uh, okay, so... So this is how the story, uh, the thing we've got to understand is we never know, except for that one little thing that says it was God that mm. <coughs> allowed him, or we, we're not going to say cause, because there's a contradiction in the story. Mm. The Bible very clearly says that God does not tempt. Mm. God leads no one into temptation. Mm. So we're now finding something in the story that's contradictory to the rest of the Bible, and what the Bible emphatically says about about himself in the Bible. So the Bible says, speaks about God, God says something about himself, this is contradictory. Because it says that now, God is, it was in God's will, it's God's doing that he looked mm. at a Philistine woman and desired her. So we're going to move very cautiously. Well, just, I mean, I want to kind of say in his defense, but that doesn't make sense. But it says, uh, did not, but his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. Mm. So it doesn't necessarily say that he enticed Samson or did yeah, but, anything specifically. But, yeah. but it infers that this is why it happened. Yeah. So we move cautiously with a piece of information like that, even if it's written. Because it does not line up with the mm. character and person of God as made known by himself throughout the rest of the Bible. Okay, God does not tempt. The Bible says that very clearly. He does not lead into temptation if you are his seed. 
does say that the other seed are blinded, their understanding is blinded, their ears are closed, their eyes are closed, and he sends them a strong delusion. Okay, we know that when the spirit left Saul, that another spirit went out from God. Okay, now, we also know that the lying spirit at one occasion went out from God to do some things. But this is never in connection to his chosen seed. He's saved. Now, this is why we're looking at the story of Samson, because we are going to, at some states, have to deal with everything in the Bible. And we had been, a picture had been painted of Samson, depicted, and we all have this, most of us have this picture in our minds. This picture isn't accurate. Okay, now it does say the only thing that that we have to acknowledge that this is God. Is it says the Spirit of God came upon him, strengthened him. Okay, but let's look at what's happening. So we have no contextual indication of what God's purposes or plan or will is. Samson never ever seeks to know the will of God. The will of God in general or the will of God for his life. It seems that he's born and his parents never found out the answer to the question of what is his purpose or his manner of life. And so it seems, and we see from Samson's walk that he, it seems there's no real vision or purpose that drives him. Um, he's driven by selfishness. Mm-hmm. He's a selfish, self-motivated man. All the, story, all the aspects of the story comes out of him being angered, mm-hmm. disappointed, he's a spoiled brat. Mm-hmm. He's um, demanding, entitled. entitled, and it causes a lot of heartache and yeah. damage mm-hmm. to the people around him. Firstly, let's start off. So his parents say, why don't you just choose mm-hmm. a wife from the Israelites? He wants that one. He says, get her for me. <laughs> okay. Um, consistent with his personality and mm-hmm. character throughout the story. Then, it um, doesn't seem that his parents are featured in the actual wedding feast, does it? Now, let's look at that. <coughs> he's a Nazarite. He's supposed to be a Nazarite. And now, he's going to defile his parents. So he's causing his parents to transgress God's instructions. His mother eats something unclean, unknowingly, unwittingly. But he gives her something unclean to eat. Now he goes into the Philistines to have a feast with them. What does the law of God say? If he goes and he eats with the uncircumcised, he's unclean. So, Adna asked earlier, and that's why we're not connecting this with the law of the Nazarites. Because the law of the Nazarites, in number 6, is very clear. That if a person, so the law of the Nazarites given to Moses is a person, a woman or a man, that separates themselves for a season at time unto the Lord. We don't know. It says they take a vow. They take a vow. Now, this was the first example of anything that looks like a Nazarite vow in the Bible. Although the law exists. So the law exists, but we don't see that any, there's no record of anyone actually taking such a vow. So no one is called a Nazarite until we have Samson. So there was a law that if somebody uh, separated themselves unto the Lord for, Lord for a season, took a vow of the Nazarite, they don't shave their head and 
don't, the big thing was don't come anywhere near anything dead. Hmm. That was the big thing. Just don't drink alcohol, clean. don't shave your yeah. hair. When your vow is finished, then you shave, then you bring your sacrifice. And if you transgressed, according to the law of the Nazareth, right? If you transgressed, for instance, someone died and you were in the presence, then your vow starts all over. Whatever part of the vow that you fulfilled before, that's, that becomes null and void, and you have to start all over. Because you became unclean. So, Samson's unclean from the start of the story, technically speaking. But the Holy Spirit doesn't depart from him. The whole thing revolves around his hair. Don't shave your hair. So it's actually a pretty easy thing. He doesn't know what the will of God is, doesn't care. He doesn't abide by the law of God. Not even the Nazarite vow, just the general laws of God. doesn't abide by it. Each with the Philistines marries a Philistine woman. Okay, his selfish actions... Um, we already know he didn't even have his own friends to go to the wedding. They have to get some Philistines to, to step in. His selfish actions causes the death of his new wife and her father. Then what is his response? More anger, more selfishness. Not Does he remorse. take any of the responsibilities of his actions? So then he goes out and does another horrible thing one thing after the other. Never sees him bring any of the sacrifices that's commanded by the law to bring to the Lord if you do become unclean. He doesn't bring any of those sacrifices. We don't see him in any of the usual activities of serving God, honoring God, bringing his sacrifices, none of that. It's not mentioned. Not mentioned at all. And he is going to now continue in the same way. Now we have this incident where the Israelites come up with a whole army. Against him. Against him. horrible because he's supposed to be their judge. They're coming to deliver him. Now, what is the main point of this story? God wanted to free them from the influence, not just the oppression, the influence of the Philistines. Here comes an army. Three thousand. He's the judge. Why doesn't he rise up and say, "Let us set is the Israelites and our countrymen, and our, our country, free from the oppression"? If he can kill a thousand on Philistines his on his own, imagine what he could do with three thousand men. It's all about him. It doesn't even occur to him that it might be about God's people, about the promised land, about the promises of Yahweh doesn't occur to him. His response is, just tell me you won't kill me. And he goes down and he just acts on his own behalf and makes matters worse, worse. And then from there just goes on and just goes and satisfies his own needs. Um, I'm thirsty. Goes into the harlot, then finds a woman to love, again in the Philistine uh, context. And so he can break down the city gates mm. of a city, kill a thousand men in one go, yeah. men. But he doesn't, it doesn't occur to him to liberate his mm. people. Um, and so well, why are we putting emphasis on this? Because this gives us an understanding when we 
ask the question in today's life, why do we see these evangelists, these prophet guys coming with such power, they report healings, prophecies, thousands of people flock to their meetings, um, what are we looking at? It's, it would be easy for us to say, well, they're working by another spirit, it's demonic, it's this or that. We've got to be careful. Because there's some men, and, and I maintain that I think Benny Hinn was called by God from the start. Some of his early teachings were very good. Revelations were revelations that I learned from in his early teachings. And, um, and I learned something great at one of his meetings. There was a woman that kept going, Amen, Amen, and he stopped and he said, Lady, and there was a lot of people, they were like, the place were packed. He stopped, he said, Lady, please stop with that. You are distracting everybody around you. Listen quietly. Uh, he said, I appreciate the confirmation support, but stop with this every half a sentence, Amen, preacher, he said, stop, please. And then she carried on and he stopped his whole preach and he said, Lady, I'm not going to ask you again. If you don't stop, I'm going to ask people to remove you. And I thought, I like this guy. I was young, didn't know much. And then Rachdach, she did it again. <laughs> and he stopped and he said, come, people of the church said, I want some people escort this lady out. And they threw her out of church. They threw her out. He said, I'm not preaching if you keep interrupting me. And I thought this was wonderful. And I took it right there. And I, from that time, I've established in my own thinking, there's got to be order in church. And he, did, he wasn't shy to throw someone out of church. So I thought, but what I'm saying is, we, we might say, well, guys like Benny Hinder operating by familiar spirits or this or that. What if God anointed him to do great deeds by his own spirit? He might not be walking in the truth anymore. We can't just assume. So, uh, this brings us to another big lesson. That's why we're doing this story. The actual point is that we can't just look at the anointing. We can't just look at the prophecy. We can't just look at the seeming power that's there. Because it could be demonic power. It could be that they were born for a specific reason and never found God's will for their lives. They just went into ministry. Many of these guys, if you look at them, they are motivated by selfish motivations. They are selfish in the way they walk it out. And so, we can learn from this story. Because it says the Spirit of God came upon him. He did these mighty exploits by the, by the power of God. Yet not, the, the will of God might have been ultimately done. But was it the will of God that he... Mm profaned the holiness of God, the name of Yahweh mm. among the nations? Was it the will of God that he had a, a, none of Samson's behavior, his personality, his character, um, reflects any of God's character? Does it? Mm. There's no love towards the body, and this is always going to be a number one characteristic of a man or woman that is walking in the will of God. So how would we identify 
a legitimate mandate from God when we see power or authority or popularity <laughs> or charisma in a ministry's uh, life manifesting is this something that we should be discussing yes. this is a big question I've questioned it many times said Lord you know we we teach solid solid truth and the monkey around the corner there's got 2,000 people that pitches up the first Sunday he opens his church now the question we we've all wrestled with that is how can this be so we're looking at Samson and I don't care how impressive his story is it's not reflective of Yahweh at all it's not even reflective of his plan to reveal himself so what are we looking at what are we dealing with what are we dealing with was he just a blunt object in God's hands did God need a brute a seemingly stupid ox to plow with does any of us do do anybody want to become a a blunt object in God's hands because this happens it has happened with people that has come through this ministry they see the power of God in preparing them for baptism and they don't wait they don't tarry they don't wait to find out what God's will is going to be they want to just within two three months they want to rush off and go do things with the little bit of truth they got from us um, and it's strange it's always been strange to me how someone would take a little bit of the revelation and just rush off and go do stuff they'll end up being a blunt object worst, worst case scenario they'll end up becoming part of the deceived ministry crowd it makes sense and this means we've got to be careful we've got to be careful all the time be careful all the time if we don't keep our eyes fixed on God's purposes for his body for his kingdom on earth it's all about his kingdom manifesting on earth you and I become the gateway between the two realms the separation between the two realms comes in at the fall of man and it's only removed through the resurrection of every individual person into Messiah to become his body on earth the separation is only taken away out of the way when the wrath is poured out and when that separation is come, taken out of the way the wrath of God starts pouring out on earth the only way the only blessed way that the separation is taken away is not generally it's only through an individual person coming into the body and then that that assembly the fellowship together in agreement with the truth and the ways of God 
becomes the doorway for the kingdom to flood through into our realm. And if we walk it out properly, then it starts flooding into your individual lives, mm -hmm. bringing radical change, mm -hmm. some discomfort, some changes that we didn't necessarily want, but that's going to long-term be better for us because it's God's will, it's His kingdom. Now, when God moves into a situation, have you noticed how He doesn't take your... Uh, he doesn't take your... Um, your needs and your preferences and your likes into account, He's going to flood your world with His will, with His kingdom. That's it. His will is good. He's not going to consider what's good for you. Have you noticed? That doesn't mean He's going to actively do something horrible. No, he'll, <laughs> never, he'll never do you harm. We know this from the story of Moses, when he talks when he responds to the Israelites. Mm -hmm. He's slowly but surely going to uproot your whole world and shift it mm -hmm. until your life is in line with his perfect will. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Now this is for us to have clear bearings on what is going to be good for us. If things shake and if things become unstable because he's moving, it's literally he'll take your house, rip it from its foundations, and move it to another place so it's in line with his own will. And it causes us all kinds of um, instability, doubts, fears, for a little while, for a season, until everything comes in line with his will. Now, this is where we are different from the rest of the world. We have decided not to choose that, mm -hmm. to prefer that. We want Him. Mm -hmm. We want His kingdom and His will to be done in our lives. We want His kingdom to come. We want everything to realign. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Okay. So now, from this story, we saw the biggest lesson we learned, the thing that stands out. Um, is the fact that it ends up with his eyes being put out, gouged out. I think this is the true image of Samson. Samson with the gates of the city on his back, or Samson with the jawbone killing a thousand men, or Samson setting foxes on fire, those are the images, yes, that leads up to this one thing. Mm. I think it's so prophetic that his eyes, he, he's mm. blinded, because he's been blind. Mm. And we'll find out when we get there, but I think his father <coughs> should have just asked. Give us the vision, give us understanding why, what are we mm. supposed to do? Because we see even, even when he, in his death, when he prays to God, one thinks, oh, this is his moment of redemption and God kind of restores him. But even then, his prayer is focused on himself because he wants vengeance for his two eyes, for the fact that he can't see. Um, There's no remorse, no repentance. He's not saying, Lord, I've messed up, forgive me. None of that. None of it. 
I think we can learn a whole lot of things from Samson when it comes to how not to act, who not to become. Mm. If the Holy Spirit does use you, mm. be careful. In the moments that the Holy Spirit moves in your life, that's when you have to seek vision. It's actually more dangerous for the person that sees the Holy Spirit moving in his life than for the one that's not seeing the Holy Spirit mm. moving in his life. Everybody <coughs> wants the Holy Spirit to have a big purpose with their lives. This is one of those things that we encounter that's actually a sign of danger. When everything is about that person. Okay, God saves us to save us, firstly, so that we can become part of His body, secondly. Okay? Because we've always been part of Him. We are seed and that's why we have been justified. Right? So we get the gospel right from that point of view. And then whatever He's going to do with us because He is working through His body. If He's going to use us in any way, it's because we're part of the body. The moment it becomes part of us, we all have experience in how that can cause us a lot of hurt and disappointment and it can cause people around us a lot of hurt and disappointment and it is going to be a lesson that we want to remember. Mm -hmm. This is an extreme example but I mean he ends up blind. You walk without vision, live without vision, you're going to end up blind. And he dies with the Philistines, Mm -hmm. not surrounded by his people whom he should have loved. So he dies without the body, without the Israelites, and blind. Okay, so whenever things, whenever you start feeling like it has to be about you, please remember the story of Samson. Because we're all going to have to, at times, deal with the tests. Let's be honest about it. It's going to be a time when the enemy whispers in your ear, oh, you're not getting acknowledged enough. Your gifts aren't being used, you know, surely by now you should have, you've grown in authority. We've seen how when people grow in the things of the Lord, the Lord will release them. The Lord will acknowledge them in due season, in the right time. Okay, so let's be careful when these things come our way. If our lives shake and it becomes uncomfortable, let the Lord align our lives with His perfect will. Don't never take matters into our own hands. Okay? We don't avenge. We don't do that. If people treat us spitefully or in a wrong way. We can comment regarding the Word of God. We can mm-hmm. proclaim the truth. We can do that. We never take things into our own hands. Does it make sense? Okay, so some of the lessons here. Keep seeking vision. We have spoken about this before. As long as we can still see, we can see where to go. We all know what it looks like and feels like when we become a little bit blinded. We start getting busy with ourselves. And it's always about the... If, if this story had any part of it where he cared for the Israelites, looked for God's will regarding the Israelites, then we would have said there was some redeeming aspect of the story. There's nothing, none, zero, zip. 
And that's why we look at the person Samson, and I don't regard him as... I know he's mentioned in chapter 11 of Hebrews fleetingly. We don't understand why he's considered a man of faith. Maybe because the Holy Spirit did some things through him. But he shows no signs of faith whatsoever. No vision. So we look at the chapter on faith and it, everything in the chapter of faith speaks about vision, looking mm -hmm. forward, knowing the plans of God. This is the one name that's named that has no evidence of vision whatsoever. What do you think, Zavia? It's faith, faith, we, we walk by faith, not by sight. <laughs> 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 Very well done. <laughs> so maybe that's the one thing you got right in the end. <laughs> now I don't want to learn faith that way. So. So, so, so this, this is just a very easy lesson to learn, and we can learn it from And then we'd never have to consider Samson again. <laughs> I would highly recommend this, not the story you want to tell your children. Of if you've got to choose something out of the Bible, just David. stay away from it. And it's, one, it's their favorite story. It's the first story they choose. It's like if... Exactly. Come on, out of a caucus. It's like that you could teach the lesson of don't get defiled. Yeah. What not to do? Uh, he always be mindful of God's laws because he was supposed to be mindful of God's laws. But he wasn't. He has no reverence for God's laws whatsoever. And he gets away with it. This is the thing about the anointing danger. When the anointing comes, and it might, you know, we are walking together, it might be that any one of you, and especially the younger people, the danger is always there that the anointing starts flowing through our lives. That's when you're careful. That's when we transgress easily. And I believe that uh, most of the guys out there that are leading big ministries, that's what happened. Not that it wasn't God. I don't think that it wasn't God at all. Um, Joseph Prince. Now, what's the other one? The Chinese guy? Yeah. Joseph, yeah. Joseph, Joseph Prince. Yeah. I mean, his early teachings were phenomenal. Phenomenal. I, in the beginning, I loved the guy. I thought, wow. Um, so, so, we all, we all want to be careful. And especially for those that are going to raise children. These are lessons for those that are going to raise children. Okay? You actually want to get the Bible stories right when it comes to raising your kids. Okay, so see how uh, historically the church has just gone wacky when it comes to teaching Bible stories to kids. It's the opposite. Right, okay, so what did we not cover that we prepared? Oh yeah, we could we could do that. Yes, this that's another lesson we could learn. Yeah, if you want. No, no, it is. We we try to look at any possible lesson that we could learn from this. Um, and again, okay, this is something that we definitely can discuss. 
just some lessons for, for all of us. When the Lord does move in our lives, when the Lord is doing things in our lives, let's keep, keep what is holy, holy. Let's protect it as those things holy. So the Bible very clearly says, do not um, throw your pearls in front of the swine. It's a difficult thing to walk out in life. Because we, we make ourselves available, we want to love on people, want to share, um, share the good things of God with people. And yet we've got to be careful not to bring what is holy and uh, share it with people that's going to profane it. And so, um, I mean, it's Samson's business. He wanted to hang with Delilah, his business. I've got no opinion on that. But what was she actually after? The one thing Samson had that was worth anything. The thing that he had at least kept in his heart for a while. And that was the story of how he was born as a Nazarite. He had been born into a vow, being set apart by God. That was the one thing he should have just protected. And can we identify the things that's holy in our lives? Things that's sanctified. Things we don't talk to just anybody about. Can I give you a moment? Might be small things, big things. God gives us a dream. God speaks to us in the quiet place. Why would we share that with and onto an uncle that's not walking in God's ways. We don't do that. This is actually one of the big things we want to... We identify what's God's, what belongs to God, what's from God. And so firstly, we, we cultivate a heart attitude of protecting it, keeping it pure keeping it for ourselves, rather not, we don't talk about it unless it's a sanctified space with sanctified people. It's um, something we'd rather do. And it can be mothers with their children, children's with their, children with their parents, brothers with their brothers or in a household, siblings. One of those areas that I think we have to develop very carefully is when not to talk, when not to share. Um, my heart is the Holy of Holies. So we love the body, we interact with the body, but there's, a, there's boundaries. boundaries. We don't overstep on each other's boundaries. And we don't allow people to overstep when it comes to our boundaries. We understand the sanctity of the life God has given us. We try and develop vision, we try and find God's purposes in our lives. And we try and keep it holy. 
if we testify to others or witness to others, it doesn't mean we let them come into the temple, into the sanctuary. Make sense? We don't throw open the doors. Satan's sanctuary is open to anyone and everybody. And then we don't... Some of the lesson I learned very early on that helped me a lot is I used to just speak to anybody that looked like they might be Christian, speak, spoke to everybody about my calling, about the things God had shared. And, um, and then a, a man once came to me and said, the Lord wanted to warn me. you telling Satan exactly what's happening. Stop blabbing about things because the demons are listening. So we speak about those things in a safe space like this. In here, nobody can hear what we're saying. This is sanctified ground when we're together. Here we can speak, but out there we're careful. That's why when we pray certain things, it's better to pray it quietly in your heart, not speak it out. We speak things out in prayer when we worship, but less audible words gives the enemy less information. They have, the enemy has an extensive communication system going on. Grapevine. Yeah. <laughs> so, Charlene lives just down the road from the Smiths. They're always trying to see if they can let the demons there know what's happening in this house and the ones here know what's happening there so they can see if they can scramble things. So we keep our homes closed and clean and safe, but they're always trying to look through the window, see what's happening. This is one of the things that we want to be aware of. We don't just talk. And so now you might be in a family situation or work situation. You don't just talk about things. Keep it secret, keep it safe. It's a line from the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> it's a line from the Lord of the Rings. Gandalf tells Frodo to keep the ring secret. He goes, keep it secret. Keep it secret. <laughs> <laughs> keep well, that, was, that was wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> Gandalf. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> True story. <laughs> okay, so... So these are good lessons for guys like you, Josh and the and the <laughs> Josh and <laughs> I wanted to say John, but anyway, so um, okay. So these are these are it sound like small things. It can mm. at the right moment it can, and especially if somebody wants to urge you, push you. Vex your soul to death. <laughs> <laughs> then you know. <laughs> that brings me to another aspect of the story that we might look at. So he should have just had, the right way would have been for him to say, it's got nothing to do with you, I'm not going to tell you. Mm. Well, even just after the, like, 
The first thing, like, hello, leave, get up, leave, leave. Why does she when want she, to know? Oh, leave. Okay, can we, can we identify this? It's, it's training ourselves to act in the right way. Mm-hmm. When she asked, why respond in the first place? Why, why? So now, what he, they did. So now they, they're dating. And the next thing, they're entering into the power struggle. <laughs> that is exactly the number one thing they say that is causing most divorces worldwide historically, the power struggle. Okay, so it's when husbands and wives come to that place where they actually start pitting their walls against each other. Now, she asked, she's a Philistine. He wasn't supposed... <laughs> He, he wasn't supposed to respond in the way. Now he's telling her another lie. Hmm. Uh, he's playing the game. So he decides he's going to play the game. And I mean, she does say he's mocking her, yeah. which he is. It's a mockery now. Yeah. So the power struggle is going to only have one outcome. So another lesson for couples. If you want to engage in the power struggle, be prepared for the outcome that is guaranteed. Nobody wins the power struggle. Everybody loses. But out of selfishness and self-willed, people in relationships will engage in the power struggle when they're enticed by the demonic. And they do it, and they keep doing it. They know they're not supposed to. It doesn't make you happy. There's no reward in it. But yet, people will continue for years. And then, also, hmm? also a lot of fear, stupidity, and foolishness because he tells her, then she performs the act. Hmm. Yeah, no, yeah. it's stupidness. We're not giving them the next time, and she performs the act. Yeah. And he still doesn't have any vision or. Yeah. Like, then he really think she's not going to do anything about the truth that he tells her. Yeah. yeah. You should have seen it coming. That's one of the things the power struggle is going to do. Desensitizes you over time. So now you are going to continue to believe that you can actually trust the very person that you are in the power struggle with. If you're in a power struggle, how can you ever trust that person? Because they are going to use whatever is you open up in good faith. Because that's how it works. People are in a power struggle, they will engage in the power struggle, and then the next moment think now they can also entrust their secrets to that person. The way it works. Mm. It is exactly the way it works in the world as we see it today. So you're either trustworthy or you're not. A clear decision. So he should have, he should have first, first time she asked, said, but nothing to do with you. I'm never going to tell you if you ask me again. I'm out of here. And if he had any character whatsoever, but he doesn't show the courage, so yes, he can rip the doors of a city. But in the inner room, he's just a wimp, actually. No character. So where does the real strength lie that God needs from us? Doesn't make sense. So there's a lot of lessons we can learn from this particular story. A lot of lessons. Okay, so all the selfish attributes, selfish 
ways of responding. The um, do you want to make a phone call? No, no, no. you're just <laughs> gonna pull the phone off. Okay. I'm just holding it in place. Um, <laughs> phone a friend. The okay, but especially I think as far as the power struggle is concerned, this is the number one way in uh, that a person should handle the power struggle. Don't play. Okay, so that is more or less where we wanted to go with this. Mm. Now let's read and see what it says about the other... One of the things that I've heard preached about that's also um, not right. Let's okay, so in Romans chapter 11, verse 29... says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So it's in context to Paul speaking about the Israelites. He just spoke about the two olive trees, yeah. the wild olive tree and the cultivated olive tree. Um, let me just, can I read verse 28 just for context? It says, Concerning the gospel, he's talking about Israel, obviously, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So he's going to talk about that he would um, make them jealous and uh, so on by other people. and so, so you know the chapter. So let's look at it. It says the gifts and the calling of God is irrevocable will cannot be changed unchanging cannot be taken away okay now obviously this has to do with the election the calling has to do with the elect the calling cannot be removed it has nothing to do with the calling of the fivefold ministry okay now this is when i was taught early days they used to love this scripture. They used to say, no, you don't go against the leadership and you don't go against God's anointed because the gifts and the calling is irrevocable. Whenever you hear spoken about the calling, the calling in the Bible refers to God's call to the seed to come to Him with their lives, to lay their lives down, to become part of the body. The calling, whenever calling occurs in the Bible, calling, is the greatest of all wonders. It's for you to become part of the body. That's mm. the calling. Okay. Now, there is a call that comes through. It's the call to servitude, serving the body as part of the body. Okay. But the Bible says very little about, directly about this calling. We don't freely use this term. Because out there in the world, people are always talking about, I've got a calling from the Lord. No, when you heard Him calling, He simply called you to lay down your life, become part of the body, so that you can become a healthy, functioning part of the body. That's the calling. And like, in all honesty, <coughs> what more would one want? Now, believe me, the Samsons no, no, out no, there, they want no, other I know, callings. I know, but I mean, just if you no. look at it, like, it's a big deal already. <laughs> you know, when we're ministering to people, 
This is something I want to caution us to. Watch out for the Samsons. You'll, uh, you'll be able to identify them. The calling is about them. Some the always something extremely special. Now there is people that is going to be led by the Spirit to lay down their lives for the body. There's people that are called to a greater level of servitude than others. We know that there's a fivefold calling. But the Bible says nothing about that calling. It's inferred. We see the way that God calls Moses. We see the way that God uses men like King David and these ways hasn't changed. But the Bible doesn't say much about it because it's not supposed to be a big deal. Mm. We respond to whatever the Lord is calling us to according to the vision He gives us. And if the Lord is going to move in your life, first ask Him, what's your purpose is what's your will? Mm. So that I can just do it. But the moment the idea, the seed drops, that I have a big calling from the Lord, you're in grave danger. That kind of attitude is only for Samson's. And we've seen how many of them have become blind, blind fools. Turn on TBN, there's many of them that started off with God's anointing, God's favor and God's purposes and ended up with private jets. Now I'm not saying if you need a jet to fly somewhere you're not supposed to have it. <laughs> but I really, mm. really doubt that um, God's going to give you bodyguards in the process. Okay, so we wanted to take the opportunity just to clear up that piece of scripture. It's the calling to become part of His body. God's plan was not to save you so you can get to heaven. God calls you because you're part of the body of His Son. You get that right. That's the true gospel. Our walk with the Lord is so that we can learn how to function healthily as part of His body and be His body. That's our walk. Anything else is another religion, not the religion of the Bible. And that is what most people out there are busy with. So the calling that's irrevocable is if God had called you, He had called you. The salvation. People can resist it, but it doesn't mean God takes away the calling. And what about the gifts? What's the gifts? Does it speak about spiritual gifts in context to this piece of scripture? Is there any context to spiritual gifts whatsoever? Uh, later in chapter 12, he's going to kind of refer to it, but not even very specific. So we can't apply this particular piece of this verse to the gift of prophecy or the gift of leadership or healing or administration or any of those things. It doesn't say that if God gave you a prophetic gift that you can never lose it. Yet we see in stories like Samson's that even in disobedience the anointing can still be upon people. That makes sense. 
but we can't use this verse to verify that idea. That's mm. what they do. That's what they do. Okay, so just to put that in context. So what gifts is this referring to? In context to the, to the few chapters. Salvation, election, <laughs> predestination. <laughs> rather, rather apply it to those gifts. <coughs> okay? So, these are irrevocable. That's uh, good news. Also, it, if we're going to use the word irrevocable, um, I mean, just in its definition, it's like when I say something and then I take it back. So this would be the will of God expressed, which he's not going to take back. Mm -hmm. So anything that has to do with the will of God expressed, that would be irrevocable, obviously, because he's not going to go against his own word. Um, that's what I would, I would keep it there. Yeah, but one of the most things we want to emphasize before we finish this, let's learn to keep what is holy, holy. Not it around. Don't take what the Lord has given you into the Philistine camp. Because you'll get your hair cut. Um, Unless you want a haircut, then. Yes, yeah, so it's, it's a very relevant picture. It's very easy to remember. That really shines another light on hairdressers. Hmm. They'll always vex you until death. <laughs> <laughs> People go and mm. tell them all their woes while they cut their hair. Interesting picture. Interesting. Mm. Mm. Um, the last one, which we discussed now, the Book of Romans. Um, people assume that that can refer to um, once a person is called and they kind of come to the Lord and I'm now saved and that's it. It's, I can never fall. I can never fall away in a way. Um, but I just want you to come. Israelites did perish in the wilderness, although God did call, call them as his people. And um, at the end, only two people entered the promised land and all of the rest per perished. We can, we can deal with that question. The calling is not the issue here. So this cannot be, uh, this verse can also not be um, used to try and interpret salvation. It's got nothing to do with that. The calling is irrevocable. doesn't mean that you're saved because you're called. You, we, we understand that there's a very clear standard that we can understanding that is that if you have been baptized, a person has been baptized into Messiah, their lives will show either that they are going to continue as part of his body, growing in line with the rest of the body, and the signs of this will be a love for the truth, an increase in knowledge, understanding and wisdom, with other words, the, the Holy Spirit power might, might counsel in the fear of the Lord. Um, we now have a very clear doctrine that we insist upon for this fellowship, and we 
contend that it's true. That a person that is baptized into Messiah, sealed by the Holy Spirit, and there's evidence over a three to four year period of growth and obedience. <clears throat> With other words, the flesh stops rebelling and the spirit starts growing. Where there's repentance observed over a long period of time, then we start we come to the assumption, a belief system, that this person is in Messiah. And we say a person that's been baptized into Messiah can never fall away. You cannot then you have started your eternal life already. It starts at baptism, it's determined there, not by your works, after baptism. The works, the lack of obedience or growth or continuance in the flesh after baptism will cost the person their inheritance, their calling and their destiny on earth. They will do harm to the body and themselves if they don't continue in the ways of the Spirit. This doesn't mean they lost their salvation. Okay. There is the reality that some people, after baptism, start showing the opposite signs. That they start questioning the truth, start veering away from the truth, and they show evidence that they choose themselves. A lack of repentance. We are going to assume with clear evidence that there's a lack of a, uh, repentance. We're going to assume that they are, have been spewed out of the mouth of God and that they have never had salvation. The call was there. They resisted the Lord, never laid down their lives and therefore have no salvation. So we, continue, we consider such people as the um, uh, elect but not the remnant. And then there's others that show signs that they are part of the body, they have come into salvation, eternal life, but they continue in unrepentant behavior. Such people, uh, we don't consider that they will lose their salvation because of their disobedience, but there is normally a cutoff point where we see them we see them losing their, or their, their destiny can be changed. This has nothing to do with their salvation. Agreement? Okay. So now that's why we will see, the, we will see who's who by the fruit long term. Uh, the moment that people have, uh, so there's people that can, um, quench the spirit then the evidence in their lives will change this doesn't mean that they're not saved such people we will set aside from the body for the, for the safety of the body now if you are having anything to do with a person that is quenching the Holy Spirit then you also start <coughs> keeping the holy things of God away from them when you start putting boundaries, that's why we are willing to put boundaries in place with people that we think are saved, but are not loving the body and living sacrificially for the body. We keep the holy things away from them, and we put boundaries in place. That's not unloving, that's still loving the body. We're only called to love the body. 
we love the other person by not actually bringing them into more harm and judgment. Does that help? Is that answering your question? Um, so no, we don't believe in any way and we don't agree with anybody that believes that a person that has been saved can lose their salvation. This is a doctrine we do not abide. Anybody that believes in the doctrine that a person can lose their salvation cannot fellowship with us. This is something we're non-negotiable, as far as I'm concerned, because that is a satanic um, falling away, part of the falling away. Because if people, if we combine works with grace, and we combine free will with um, election, then we have the gospel that's accepted in the world out there. Now we've got to choose, and we have chosen. You can't have free will and election. You can't have both. On that, we are going to teach on free will. Okay, we contended about free will over and over and over. Very short, since the Bible says very little about it. Yeah. So just just on that, free will. Nothing. Nowhere in the Bible it says God gave us free will. Nowhere. We had to contend on that one over and over on our trip. Bible never says free will. Please keep. That's it. We're not saying it doesn't exist. We're saying God. Didn't give it. Satan gave humanity free will. Now, if um, if we have election and free will in our thinking, then we're going to get all confused. We are led by the Spirit. We remain obedient. We started off obedient in order to receive salvation. It's because He decided to justify us. We, we understand these things. <clears throat> a person that continues to exhibit um, his own will and not the will of the Lord might be a person like Samson. Just a fool. It doesn't mean they're not saved. But it will have consequences. Make sense? So I hope that answers it. So please, please, in no way, speaking to anybody, never ever even sound like we consider a person might lose their salvation. Okay? Cannot be. Because we insist on an almighty, all-powerful God. Anything less just won't do. That's the other God, and He has no power to save anyway. Okay, so that's it. Uh, questions? Any more questions? Samson. Was it worth doing Samson? <coughs> Yes. Um, Samson, okay, he was a very arrogant person by the, by the sounds of it, but yet at the end when he was standing between the pillars, God still loved him because God still gave him the power to push the pillars in. You see, very good, very good. We've got to be, you've got to, you've, you, you will learn to monitor your thinking at all times. The Bible doesn't say God loved Samson, so we won't entertain so when, whenever you think, check your sentences in your head. So because our minds will construct the thoughts according to what we previously would have understood. That makes sense. So God's love is expressed. Remember, it's very important. It helps us understand that God loves His Son. Doesn't love us individually. Because if God loved you individually, then it means that He would compromise for your sake. 
because he loves you. And human love is not the same as God's love. And so, the Holy Spirit, according to God's original intent, still came upon him and he did a mighty deed as a serial killer. Um, <laughs> it doesn't equal love in any way, doesn't there's no <coughs> Yeah, because it, it, might, it might have been that God was just using the occasion to kill the lords of the Philistines. Mm. It doesn't so, necessarily reflect his never, Samson. In the whole story, there's never any indication of what we call relationship, how we understand relationship. There's an interaction of power. This is why, <clears throat> please refer back, you need to watch the teachings on the difference between the presence and the power of God. The person and the power of God. The power of God can manifest without... We prefer seeing His presence and His power. <coughs> Never just His power. That makes sense. Because people can remove the character and the person of God from His power in the way that they sometimes minister and do things. And this becomes extremely dangerous. The fruit is always bad. If we are in His presence, out of relationship, then our hearts will be tender. We will remain. That's when love will have the manifestations of love. The manifestations of love is teachability, um, selflessness, servitude. Those are manifestations of love. Um, we discussed, just a pause there, um, that Samson... It seems to be the exact opposite of King David, mm-hmm. like in the way that he walks and relates to God and all of that. So, I think in in learning kind of out of Samson, out of Samson's life in what not to do, um, I don't know. In my mind, it kind of makes sense to compare his ways with that of King David, and then also see from God's side the difference in interaction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the relationship, because then we can see God has expressions of love towards King David. Mm. Um, but then King David reflects and witnesses to him being in God's Son and walking in the ways of Messiah and all of that. So then then everything mm-hmm. kind of, I feel like it makes a lot of sense. So that's something maybe to think of. Mm-hmm. We had a huge contention with a guy in Bloemfontein where, <coughs> I must say, he gave me a run for my money. It's um, probably the first time ever I felt that a person really gave me a good run. Mm. Where, where, we, where there <coughs> was a leaving of a agree to disagree kind of thing. But he was, he was insisting that um, a person that sins after they were baptized, they lose their salvation. And uh, logically, what is the standard then? Mm. Who knows? You, you see, they confuse, they confuse the changing of destiny. Mm. Where God goes, okay, I'm going to let you walk out your life in grace, always reaching out to you, but I'm not going to use you anymore in the way that I intended. Mm. I'm not going to 
Yeah. So you minimize actually ineffectiveness. You minimize, you, you become l less trustworthy uh, through actions, and that can happen. Um, but uh, like I said to this guy, you can't bring any evidence that anybody has ever lost salvation. Mm -hmm. It's impossible. You can say, oh, but the person went back to drugs. And what happened in the last two days of mm -hmm. his life? on his sickbed. You can't. You can't bring proof that a person lost salvation just because there was sin present. Also, um, Gerard actually made a very good point afterwards because the, the argument group would go, well, they were baptized and they did receive the Holy Spirit as a seal, um, but then lose their salvation. And then, because that audience usually goes not for predestination, they go according to the full knowledge of God. Oh, but God saved those whom He knew would choose them. And then Kharad made a good point saying that did God then, because if God gives the Holy Spirit as a seal of salvation and this person is going to lose their salvation later, does God then have the ability to make a mistake when He seals a person with His Holy Spirit? Because if, if, the, if, if, one says, oh, but they received the Holy Spirit, then, and later they're going to lose their salvation, and that means that God made a mistake. Mm -hmm. He sealed the wrong person. Mm -hmm. And that obviously can't, doesn't add up, can't be true. Yeah. So that's also maybe. There's a lot of admin going on in heaven. Um, <laughs> Keep in mind. So, so, so it's, it's actually, I mean, it's just so logical if a person wants to be open-minded and logical. But... Um, Okay, so, can a person be saved without being baptized in water? If they didn't know about it. Yes. If they really didn't know about it, they weren't aware, they were in a place where all the information they received. Now, you have some people that's not fivefold. A saint is going to find it extremely difficult to figure out the mysteries of the Bible. It's almost impossible. That's why God gives the apostles and the teachers. A saint, generally speaking, except if God actively gives a person a revelation, they don't figure out the mysteries. God will give them other ways to lay down their lives. There will be a dedication and devotion. That's why we make leeway for the lady that grew up in on the island of Corsica there's only a Catholic church and she all she knows is the little bit that she gleans from the Bible and God's revelation towards her so the call comes through and she responds by laying down her life and her will mm. actively over a lifetime so we're not saying that they can't be saved but the moment an evangelist comes to town, tells them and shows them from the word that they have to be baptized and the person resists baptism, mm. that is evidence that they actually in their hearts did not receive the um, uh, circumcision of the heart because circumcision of the heart is cutting away the flesh in Messiah. And so a person led by the Holy Spirit will always respond to the baptism. Mm even if it's later in life. And if a person didn't understand and God makes a way, then at least they would call out to Him and receive the Holy Spirit as a seal if they are in Him. And so, generally speaking, if you have to do with a person that 
looks at the scripture and says, I don't care what it says, I won't do it. Not saved. Okay. And we're saying this is without exception. A person that emphatically denies the baptism cannot be saved if they know about what the scripture says. You deny the word of God, it cannot be by the Spirit, and therefore we are going to say not saved. Just when it comes to salvation, that's it. <clears throat> we can't have gray areas, we can't have that. But they might spill in future. Mm. Yeah. Next. We're just saying it's that like you're a, not yet saved. That's yeah. like the gift and the calling of God is irrevocable. So the calling will always... Yeah. Because there's going to be people that were hard-headed and stubborn, and they end up on their deathbeds, and they go, Lord, forgive me, I was a fool. And they, we're not going to have an opinion that's between them and God. Because the repentance that cuts to the heart, that's something that man can hardly fathom. And therefore we're not going to say, but a person that's sitting on the couch there and saying, I won't get baptized, you're not saved. That's it. Um, okay, so just for the record, what does not saved mean? Does it mean a person is going to hell? Yes. There's no holding facility. <laughs> well, if you think that's true, then Catholics <laughs> go to the Catholics. So the Catholics so even provided for that the grey area. Yeah. So you know, purgatory. we're not going to say we're not going to say they went to a hole. No, they're just in purgatory. There's a holding. You better pray so that they can make it. It's like that's the uh, pray or pay. Yeah, pray or pray. <laughs> okay, so 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 it's better if we just say it as it is. There's no grey areas. Okay, so. <coughs> we understand that. <coughs> so we won't change the truth of the gospel to make someone feel better. Is there evidence that Samson had salvation? The Holy Spirit moved upon him, but he was set him. aside. Also left him. The Lord actually says the Lord so, so we'll find out if he's got salvation when we get there. There's no evidence to say that salvation that he just had salvation. We can't make that assumption. We have no we don't have enough evidence for that. Although the Holy Spirit worked in his life. That's shocking, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, so I think that's enough for today. On that high note. Yeah. <laughs>